So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know that he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents had said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who, was been, who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said, for we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, he was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the, man, the, opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe, may be believe I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord.
Who knows who this is? It's not Harry Potter. Shame on you for saying that, but that's fine. <laughs> Who's the... Cornelius Fudge. Uh, so uh, this is Cornelius Fudge, uh, and he's the Minister of Magic from the Harry Potter series. I knew you didn't get it wrong. That was fine. Um, and whatever your position is on Harry Potter, uh, just hold on to it for a moment. Uh, my comments don't promote or, or condemn the series, but rather just refer to this guy's character. Now, in the fourth instalment of the Harry Potter series, uh, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix, uh, it's become evident to all who have eyes to see and ears to hear that Voldemort, uh, the bad guy in the series, has returned. Evident to everyone except Cornelius Fudge, uh, who, in spite of, of the mounting evidence and witnesses, is unable to accept it. Because to do so would mean that he'd have to admit that everything he believed was wrong and that his worst fears had come true. In the face of all the evidence... Fudge is blinkered, narrow-minded, block-headed, and blinded to the most obvious and rational truth there is. This evening, we're going to do something a little different in this series. And rather than focus just on this passage that Hannah read to us, we're going to do a bit more of a survey of the New Testament to see what is said about the Pharisees and what they're really like. What we'll come to see this evening uh, is that the Pharisees are actually quite like Cornelius Fudge. My prayer is that God's Spirit will begin to expose in our hearts where we may be in danger of being Pharisaical ourselves and turn us in our hearts to be more like our Lord Jesus instead. So with that, please bow your heads to pray. Loving, gracious, heavenly Father, thank you for your every good gift and blessing. Thank you for this gift of your word. Uh, we pray now that as we meet here by your spirit, you would encourage us, inspire us, and bring us to a full knowledge of who you are, changing our stubborn hearts and conforming us more to the image of your son. Amen. The Pharisees were one of three main Jewish sects that existed before and during the time of Jesus. The others were the Sadducees, who you'd remember from the New Testament, and another group called the Essenes. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were a very popular party and had a great deal of power in the senior ranks of society and religious life. What the Pharisees were brilliant at, their, their main gift, was in their understanding of even the smallest part of the law of Moses and instructing the people how that small part applies to their everyday lives. They're amazing at it. So they weren't so much priests, you know, the kind of people who organize and instruct the people in worship, uh, but they're a bit more like lawyers who would let you know how to keep God's laws uh, and let you know when you're in danger of not keeping them. Their concern overall was on people's salvation. The Pharisees, as you'll know from the book of Acts, believed in life after death and believed with all their might that it was how you live now in this life that made you righteous, that is right with God. If you got this wrong, your eternal state, according to them, was a pretty horrible one. Now initially, this doesn't sound so bad, does it? 
we as Christians today have a similar concern, don't we, about right and holy living? Jesus himself was deeply concerned about the eternal realities. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. He spoke about it more than he talked about heaven and in greater detail and with sharper warnings. Now, I'm, not, uh, I'm aware of, as I say that, that for some of us, this language is a little uncomfortable. I'm not going to dwell on it here tonight or say more about it. I just want to raise the subject and to note that Jesus and the Pharisees were both deeply concerned about it. So the Pharisees uh, were coming from a, a good place. They wanted people to enter an eternity of joy, not anguish. And so they saw it as their mission to, to go out and teach people how to live faithful lives. And aren't we similar in the church today? We too care deeply about eternal realities. And we who believe, believe unashamedly and look forward to an eternity of joy and gladness dwelling in the presence of our Lord forever. And because we believe this, because we care deeply about all the people God has placed around us and want them to be with us in this sublime presence of God forever, we host Burns Nights and Comedy Nights and courses and send people out overseas as missionaries and work to equip Christians in how to share their faith in the hope that our friends and families would too come to believe. That's what we're about, isn't it? Sure, we have a, a foretaste, an appetizer of that future joy now by the Spirit and in community with other believers. And sure, we want others to taste that too with acts of kindness and works of love and service in our community. But our hope primarily is a future one. The main course, the dessert for us who believe, is future-based. So if all this is true, shouldn't we be commending the Pharisees? Shouldn't we be getting behind them and praying that their work would increase and partnering with them? Well, no. And to see why, we need to see what Jesus himself said about the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, Jesus said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Luke chapter 11, verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In Matthew 23, Jesus spends most of the chapter calling condemnation upon the Pharisees and teachers of the law. An example, Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're so keen to keep the law, to give 10% of everything, even the trimmings from your flower bed, but you've not done the most important things that the law says. But here's the key verse, I think, Matthew 23, verse 3. Jesus said, 
So you must be careful, this is talking to the crowd, you must be careful to do everything they, the Pharisees, tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on the men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move one finger for them. We often think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, don't we? But these are his words. Jesus is angry here. He is angry at hypocrisy. He's angry to see those who know better, those who are Israel's teachers, as he called Nicodemus a few chapters ago, Nicodemus a Pharisee. He's angry when those whose role it is to lead, train, guide, and protect his sheep, his people, teach them badly. Or don't live it out themselves. Hypocrites. Jesus' brother James writes about this in his letter to the churches. James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. You see, Jesus cares about his people's eternal realities far more than the Pharisees do, far more than you and I do. And it made him angry to see them kept under such a heavy weight of religious teaching that didn't have his father God at the center. Blind guides, he called them. Whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. 23 verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They'd missed the entire point. They were so focused on getting right the details that they missed the big picture. Matthew 23 verse 24. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. It would be hilarious, wouldn't it, if Jesus wasn't being so serious. Can you see these vivid metaphors Jesus is giving us here? I could go on much longer, but do you get the point? I once heard a sermon where the preacher basically said that Pharisees have got a bad rap from Christians over the last few years. But you see that the Bible doesn't allow us to think that way. Jesus' words, by and large, tell us that the Pharisees were hypocrites and show-offs who did far more harm than good. Can you see that? Not only that, but the Pharisees were so convinced that they were right. They were so blinkered, just like Cornelius Fudge, that in their mind, anyone who opposed them opposed God himself and therefore must be stopped at all costs. And we see this in our passage, don't we? We pick up a story uh, after the blind man has miraculously been healed by Jesus in chapter 9. But the issue is that Jesus has healed this guy on the Sabbath. Now essentially, in Jesus' time, and still today for many Jews, the Sabbath it was God's holy day in which you weren't allowed to do any work. You couldn't even make a fire or cook dinner. The Pharisees had loads of rules about the Sabbath. They had rules within rules to protect you from breaking the bigger rules. And here's Jesus, according to their rules, breaking the Sabbath laws by healing a blind man. I mean, this is back to that tithing mint stuff, isn't it? What's more important? 
to keep the law in its strictest sense or to do justice, mercy to the blind man? Which is more important? Jesus knows. Now, pay attention here because this man's healing in this chapter forces us to ask, who is really blind? This man or the Pharisees? So the Pharisees call this guy in and they ask him what's happened. This man has a a pretty simple testimony, chapter 9, verse 13. He, He put mud on my eyes and I washed them and now I see. The Pharisees become divided, and and some saying that he can't be from God because a holy man wouldn't work on Sabbath, and others saying, well, he must be from God because he did a miracle. So they asked the guy what he thinks, since it was his eyes that 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 Jesus opened. He's a prophet, he replies, chapter 7, verse 17. The Pharisees, they can't believe it. They've no category for accepting this. They're so blinded, so blinkered by their own religious structure, that they can't see the truth when it's right there before them, just like Cornelius Fudge. You see, God wouldn't work on a Sabbath. Jesus works on Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus can't be God. The problem is that Jesus has apparently done God's work on the Sabbath. I know, thinks the Pharisees. What we need to do is to prove that this whole healing thing never actually happened. I know what to do. Let's bring in this guy's parents. So that's what he did, verse 18. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? All his parents can say is, ask him yourself. Because the Jews, here meaning the the Jewish leaders, said that anyone who was acknowledging that Jesus came from God would get kicked out of synagogues and therefore be excluded from their community. So they call the man again. Give glory to God, they say, verse 24. Oh, the irony here. Calling for this man to give glory to God when they themselves refuse to. Hypocrites, vipers, whitewashed tombs. Finally, the man says, verse 32, nobody has ever heard of God opening the eyes Sorry, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The facts speak for themselves. There's nothing more to say. Yet the Pharisees have no category for this. They're so against Jesus and all that he stands for that they can't see past their own stubborn hard hearts to the blindingly obvious truth. Just like Cornelius Fudge. In a rage, they throw the man out of the synagogue. On hearing that the man had been thrown out, Jesus goes searching for him. And when he finds him, he reveals to him that he is the Son of Man, verse 37. The one sent from God. Promised long ago the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen and anointed one. Jesus tells this man that he was right all along. This poor blind man who spent his days on the streets outside the temple begging was right. Jesus had been sent by God. Ironically, the blind man could see the blindingly obvious truth. But the Pharisees, those who teach Israel, those who had all the scrolls and all the learning, they were blind. 
Jesus said to him, verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, from some Pharisees who were there with him, perhaps those very Pharisees who had just thrown him out, asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus replies, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, basically, because you still think that you are right, in spite of all that you've seen, because you still believe that I'm not from God and I'm a sinner, because you claim that you are not blind to all this truth, you have been judged and found guilty of rejecting God's chosen one. That's really sharp, isn't it? That those who claim to know who God is and what God wants, but at the same time reject Jesus, they're condemned. Remember James's words? Teachers will be judged more harshly. These teachers were so afraid that Jesus would upend their system. They were so sure that he was wrong. In spite of all his signs to the contrary, his miracles, that in the end, they would plot to kill him and eventually go on to murder the Son of God, Jesus. And this was the problem. This is what made Jesus so mad. Hypocrisy. Where the Pharisees would do nothing to help the people but make their burden harder, Jesus took their burden for them. Where the Pharisees would chastise people for working on God's day of rest, Jesus seeks out the broken and gives them eternal rest. Where the Pharisees taught God's will but did something different, Jesus was fully obedient to the will of God his Father. Where the Pharisees would prevent people from being made well, Jesus would seek out the sick and bring them healing. Where the Pharisees would plot to murder Jesus to protect their way of life, Jesus willingly sacrificed himself to offer eternal life to the whole world, even to these Pharisees, if they turned and believed. This was a huge part of why Jesus came. Obedience to God's law in our place. God knew that. Try as we might. It was impossible for the Pharisees, for the Jews, for me, for you, to keep all his good laws. And if we did, by some miracle, we become proud and hard-hearted, just like the Pharisees did. So God, the Father, made a plan with his son Jesus before eternity, that Jesus would come into our world, into our mess and chaos, and live a perfect life of obedience to his Father's good laws that we could never keep, and would die facing the punishment that we all deserve for not keeping them. And to prove to us, to assure and guarantee us all that Jesus' perfect life of obedience 
And his death in our place was absolutely enough for us to be made right with God, to secure our eternal peace with God. God the Father, by the power of his spirit, raised his son Jesus back to life to reign and rule as king forever, even now. And so Jesus' life of perfect obedience, his perfect law-keeping, can be seen as mine, can be seen as yours, can be credited to our account if we believe and have faith that this is true. We don't need Pharisees to make us feel guilty for doing the wrong things. We need Jesus who took away our guilt by doing the right things for us. This is a a big part of the good news at the heart of our faith. This is the gospel. That's what gospel means, good news. Are there rules to keep? Yes. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He told his disciples in the Great Commission to teach those they bring to faith to obey everything he has commanded. Yes, as believers, there are rules and laws to keep good rules and laws from a good God. But when we get them wrong, which we will again and again, there is grace and forgiveness when we turn to God in repentance, when we recognize before God that what we have done is sinful and try by his Spirit not to do it again. Remember Jesus' words? If you claim to see, to live in the light, that is, if you claim to be a follower of God but do not recognize sin for what it is, your guilt remains. So rather than be those who are critical, who chastise other people for not being the kind of Christian we are, for not living the kind of Christian life that we think people ought to live, for not living up to the standards that we might have set for religious life, rather than all this, show love, show grace and mercy and kindness. If someone you know in this congregation in your life is walking in sin or is blind to their sin, then gently correct them. Show them where their sin is and pray with them that they would repent of it and by the power of God's Spirit break its hold over them. If you feel the crushing weight of religiosity, of rule-keeping to earn God's favour, then turn again and find in Jesus a loving God who kept all God's laws perfectly because he knew you couldn't, who gave himself for you to remove your burden and guilt. Believe the gospel. And if you can see all these facts about Jesus and still deny that he is the Son of God, the divine third person of the Trinity, in eternal relationship with the Father, loving his Son in relationship with his Spirit, then I pray that by the power of his same Spirit, he will remove your spiritual blindness and bring you into his marvellous light to delight in him forever. Please bow your heads to pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your good and perfect law, your good word. We are sorry, Lord, for how we, in our own strength, cannot attain to it, cannot keep it. But Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. We thank you for sending Jesus to live your perfect life of obedience in our place. And that his life of obedience can be counted as ours when we believe in you. Father, help by your spirit break our stubborn pharisaical hearts. That we would be those who love others. Who uphold them before you and draw them closer into that family of your trinity. And forgive us, Lord, when we fail. Because you are merciful and wonderful. Amen.